The reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. We've been journeying through the letter to the Romans, um, as Josh has been taking us through it for over a month now, and uh, Leighton's been taking us through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, both of those journeys have been, have been fruitful by all accounts. We've been challenged in Romans to, con- to consider what it meant um, for, for the Jews of, of the church in Rome there to be in possession of the law and, and not merely hearers of the word but the doers of the law. Um, and we've been discussing what it means to be justified, uh, what is entailed in the process of, of sanctification, all rather lofty concepts. And then last week, Leighton took us through Mark 5 with the, the Gerasene demoniac, the, the, the man who was possessed by legion, and we got a glimpse into the spiritual realm, the, the metaphysical dimension that transcends our, our physical world. And if you're like me, uh, these concepts can seem a little pie in the sky, a little esoteric um, abstractions. These, these can be puzzling. Uh, cause the brain to wrinkle a little bit. Um, so this morning's passage seems like we're taking a bit of a reprieve from that, like we're getting a, a break. Um, our text this morning starts by issuing a, a command. It says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Couched in, this, in these verses is, is, a, is a command that's almost hidden in the translation, but it, it, it links to a bunch of other passages contained without, within the, the New Testament canon. Um, they're all linked together by a single Greek word, um, but it's actually translated most commonly in, uh, in English as two words, and it's not immediately evident in this morning's translation, the ESV, but if you were to read it in, in the New American Standard, it would be a little bit more evident in verse 3, where it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another. One another as more important than yourselves. This word that's translated one another is a single Greek word. It, it serves as an explicit command at, at least 50 times in the New Testament, and it is clear that the New Testament authors had a common theme in mind, issuing these commands so frequently. So this morning we're going to serve as a a bit of an introductory uh, 
survey. Uh, we're going to focus on Philippians 2, 3 to 11, but, but a broad overview survey of the one another commands. And, and Josh has made reference to these as he gets into Romans. And we'll see these one another commands start to pile up at the back of Romans once we get through the lofty concepts of law and justice and righteousness and sanctification. The one another commands come near the end. So I'm going to do a, a, a quick survey of some of the one another passages found in, in Mark 9, 50. Uh, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Romans 12, 10 says to love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 16 says to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Romans 13, 8 says, oh, no one anything except to love each other, or that is the word, one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans 15, 7 says, therefore, welcome one another or accept one another as Christ has accepted or welcomed you for the glory of God. Galatians 5, 13 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Colossians 3, 13, bearing with or forbear one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Colossians 3.16, right in the same passage, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And finally, in 1 Peter 5, uh, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As I said, this, this word, Greek word is alelon, is, is translated over 50 times as an explicit command in the New Testament. And there is something alluring about these texts, something that draws me into them, they, they, they want to make me believe that this is something I can do. This is doable. This is pragmatic. You know, we, all this talk about sanctification, justification, righteousness, all this stuff is sometimes just hurts the brain to think about. But I can do this. I can love one another, I think. I can do this. I can regard one another as more important than myself. And for those keen to hear it, these one another passages have, a, have an Old Testament law flavor to them. Um, and it seems alluring because there is something within me that likes to think that these commands are, are doable on my own. It, it answers a question that, that kind of sits in my heart that says, what must I do to be a Christian? Even growing up in the church reading the Bible, I, I always had the easiest time coming to one of these one another passages. They seemed most applicable to me. All those other passages seem so out there, esoteric. The stuff in Romans, man, that was tough meat to chew on. 
Um, But when we got near the end of Romans, it was a little easier. Accept one another. Be of the same mind with one another. I had a hard time wrapping my mind around that pie-in-the-sky stuff. I just wanted to be told how to live, what to do, how to treat others, as a good Christian should. I I even see that same impulse in my own children. Uh, One of my kids sat under the teaching of a youth minister um, one time, not in this church, uh, but this youth minister gave a message. And the gist of the message was essentially, do better, suck less, um, you know, don't sin, do good things. That was the gist of it. I, I sat at the back listening with a measure of scrutiny. I was skeptical. I, I, I heard it was deafening in my ears the absence of the gospel of grace in the message. Um, but my son, he came out of that message with zeal. He was excited to serve God. He's like, yeah, I can do this. I can, I can, I can do better. I can suck less. And I didn't want to crush his dreams. I didn't want to say, no, you can't. <laughs> but I, I just kind of let him go with it and asked me if that message of do better transformed him into a, a sinless image bearer of Christ. It did not. <laughs> he still inherited my sinful flesh. Um, all of this is to say something so imperative as we approach these one another passages. The, the standalone message of, of do better has no place in the gospel presentation apart from being a necessary consequence of understanding that Christ has already done better on our behalf. I'll say that again, that the standalone message of sin less, do better, love one another out of your own, that, that standalone message cannot be preached in a vacuum. It has to be understood with the lens, wearing the lens that Christ has done better on our behalf. Our ability to do better, our desires to do better, our desires to follow these one another passages, these commands from Scripture, must be understood as flowing from this grace alone through faith alone reality, a result of the gospel, not the gospel itself. The gospel is merely good news of who God is and what he has done for us, who he has revealed himself to be in the person and work of Jesus. The same can be said anytime we approach something resembling the law in Scripture. That's not to say that we can read these passages with a little side wink and say, that's not really doable, so you don't even try to do it. That's not, what, that's not the way we are to read these. I can't be expected, I can't think that I can't be expected to do these things when they are explicitly commands. Philippians 2, 3, 4 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I can't wipe my brow and say, phew, thankfully that was done for me on my behalf, so I don't have to do it. That misses the point of the command. The, 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 the command, the, the law has always been for our good as well as God's glory. It's clear that the, the command is issued because the command is meant to be obeyed. 
The question remains, though, is how? How can we do these things? How can we obey these things? How do we not merely pretend, but merely have this mind among you, as this, as this passage says, to have a transformation of our mind? Leighton said in his message last week that faith is not downloaded. It's not presto. He says, in general, our depth of confidence in God is hard-fought, slow, a long-suffered growth. But God creates a faith-filled people by again and again being a faithful God. That is why uh, these one another passages most often come on the heels of, or the cusps of, a prolonged description of the gospel. Merely the, the good news, the gospel is the mere good news of who God is and what he has done. He reminds us over and over again of who he is and what he has done, how he is faithful, and slowly but surely he is making for himself a faithful people as that truth begins to dawn on us. That pattern is, is so often repeated in Scripture, and it has a purpose. It, it has a purpose to transform, to, to, trans, to sanctify us. It's Palm Sunday this morning. It's the Sunday where we, uh, in the church calendar, remember the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus as he rides in to Jerusalem. Um, kind of the week leading up to his crucifixion and death is he sends his disciples in to find a, a donkey, a colt, and he rides in on a donkey. Zechariah, sorry, Ruthann, it's out of order here. Zechariah 9.9 foretells this event and says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Our passage this morning continues from the explicit command in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' triumphant entry was, was typical of a uh, a king or an emperor returning from battle and victory. In fact, that's where we get this term rapture from. The Greek term is, is perusia, and it's, it's when a victorious uh, kingdom would come out of the city and greet the king as he rides victoriously in, in, in triumphant parade fashion. And Jesus' triumph, triumphant entry, He's riding on a humble donkey, not some glorious war horse. Certainly a, a picture of humility entering 
on a donkey instead of a glorious white horse of some sort. But the irony is, is, is that those who greet him bow down, worship, they put down palm branches and they say, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna, God save us. They call to this humble, peaceful, by all appearances, harmless, in a, unable to free Israel from the tyranny of Rome, Rome who worships the god of Mars, who is the god of war, who's pictured on a, on a war horse. Here they have their king entering on a donkey. His riding in to Jerusalem in this fashion is, was certainly political in nature maybe anti-political if you want to consider it that. Christ, which means anointed one, is what, what they did to kings, is what they did to David when they anointed him, what they did to even Saul before David. He was chosen for, empowered by, and is God himself. The task of liberating the captives, setting free from the oppressors. And immediately after this triumphant entry, Jesus goes and actually cleanses the temple. If you're following along in the narrative, he goes and he turns over the table. It's an act of aggression. This man that seems so harmless, seems so unable to enact aggression, he comes in with this aggressive act of flipping over the tables and cracking whips, driving people, driving the old regime out. The wicked regime that monetized the worship of God. He was symbolic of a new paradigm. A new kingdom was at hand. But it all started with him riding in on a donkey because he came with a message of peace. Back to Philippians. We are told to have this mind among ourselves. It continues that from that explicit command to consider, to regard one another as more important than ourselves. We are to model how Jesus did that. Not mere outward conformity to behavior, but a, but a whole paradigm shift. Christ in his incarnation, though he was in the form of God, as our passage says this morning, that the word translated here as form um, can be a translated appearance, shape, or, or type as well. It's, it's used again in verse 7 to say he took, took the form of a servant. He took the form of man. It's here that theologians root the concept that Jesus, the man, had, had two natures, a, a divine nature and a human nature at the same time. Um, fancy words, that hypostatic union is the thing that wrinkles the brain. Uh, Paul clarifies one thing later in verse 7, saying that Jesus took the form of a servant, that is man, but he was born merely in the likeness of men as well. So he was fully man, but in a sense, he had the likeness of men because he was, as Hebrews 4.15 says, like man in every respect except without sin. 
the word form of God and, and of man here in this, is, is the thing that philosophers and, and, and theologians have, have referred to as the essence of what it means to be. The intrinsic qualities of God and, and likewise of, of man. Elsewhere in Colossians, we are told that Jesus was the very image of God. Whereas we were told that we were created in the image of God, we, we bear the image of God in Genesis 1.27. He is the very image. You hear the distinction? I'll say it again. We are made in the image of God. but He is the image of God. We are an image of an image, I guess. Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate, the second person of the Trinity who is God. His very essence is that of Yahweh's, the Lord, the one and the same Yahweh who told Moses, who introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness and then led him to Mount Sinai and dispelled the law. He is one and the same. And yet this man, this God in the flesh man, did not count his equality with God, a thing to be held on to tightly. He mounted a, a donkey, not a war horse. At least in this scene. We catch a glimpse in Scripture of another scene that unfolds in the history of salvation. Depending on your reading of Revelation, it could, be, could have happened, it could be happening, or it could still ha- be yet to happen. We just know it's either happening or it has happened or it's going to happen. In Revelations 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The passage continues and says this, this the one who is faithful and true, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the word of God comes from heaven riding a, a white horse. Josh went through Revelation probably three or four years back, and he he built a lot of imagery around this white horse about this Parthian warrior that was feared in the imagination of the ancient Middle East at the time. And that certainly the writer of Revelation was tapping into that Parthian warrior, this white horse was a feared warrior. And, And Jesus is depicted as the warrior And yet, he rides in on a donkey. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be held on to tightly, to be grasped, but made himself nothing. I'll continue in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here follows the convention of other scriptural authors who, in how he describes God alongside Jesus in the same sentence, and this rubs some people the wrong way as they think that you're not being adequately Trinitarian enough uh, in your descriptions of Jesus, but this is truly what 
the authors of Scripture do. They, they often refer to God and Jesus Christ alongside one another, then proceed to attribute all the, all the titles and all the honors that are rightly God's to Jesus, to make it clear that Jesus is God in his own person as well. In this case, an honor of bowing down and worshiping. That is something that should only be done to God, to worship no one but God. And, and yet, here we are privy to, this, this, to witness the scene um, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning that death will not stop this universal acknowledgement of Christ's lordship over all creation and cause us to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. The take-home message this morning has to be this. It has to be that our, our commands to love one another, to regard one another as more important than ourselves, to put ourselves below others, it cannot be considered in a vacuum. We can't just look at that and say, okay, I can do this. We have to acknowledge some of this esoteric pie-in-the-sky stuff that we're going through in Romans and Mark. We have, to we have to root it in that. We cannot be expected to pull up our bootstraps, to do better, to suck less, to, to, to put ourselves on the bottom of the pile without first understanding and acknowledging that we serve the king, the king of kings, who willingly put himself at the bottom of the pile first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us. You've bent a knee and spoken to us in a way that we can understand you. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to live the life we could not live to die the death that we deserve to die. I pray that we, we don't lose sight of the forest amidst the trees. We don't just come together to these one another passages in Scripture and think these are doable, apart from first acknowledging the gospel, the good news that we are no longer subject to ourselves or we are no longer define our own worth, our own value, but our worth and value is, is defined entirely in who you are and what Christ has done on our behalf. I pray that our hearts and minds would be daily transformed by these truths. Let us do the, t the job of worship in struggling to understand these things that are out there and enable us, empower us to then fulfill the command to love one another, 
to subject ourselves, to put ourselves at the bottom of the pile, to count others as more significant than ourselves. Amen.